Rum and tonic? Rum and tonics, that sounds great. Yeah. Not anymore, it doesn't. Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid. I'm implausible gourmet magazine cover girl Sarah D. Bunting, and what do I think of this co-host, Jeb Lund? He's trenchant. You'll think so, too. Hello, Jeb. Hi. I I boner tested all my commentary in a movie theater. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So, today we're talking about 2001's made-for-TV movie, Dinner with Friends. Do we have any pod business before we begin? Mercifully, no. Okay. I will note, for no particular reason, that sometimes we record these out of order. So if you're getting a little tonal whiplash these first few weeks of the season, it's going to be okay. And now on to the plot summary, which should be pretty short. There's not a whole lot of plot here, per se. Two married couples create a declamatory punnet square of intimate identity crises when one of the pairs, lawyer Tom, Greg Kinnear, and artist Beth, Tony Collette, breaks up thanks to Tom's infidelity. Naturally, it's more complicated than that. The thing is 94 minutes long, first of all. And second of all, you hope they weren't handing out drama Pulitzers for four-handers that don't have anything to add to cultural benchmarks of marital cynicism, such as... The Alan Alda versus The Four Seasons. Donald Margulies did, in fact, win a Pulitzer Prize for Dinner with Friends in 2000, presumably because what passes for narrative progress here, the devolution of the audience's sympathy for Beth as more information comes to light for us and the characters, the struggle of their, quote, best friends, food writers, LOL, Karen, Andy McDowell, and Gabe, Dennis Quaid, not to view Tom and Beth's split as a referendum on their own marriage, was seen as a nuanced portrait of the toxicity of denial and projection in longtime partnerships. I have a handful of qualitative quibbles. I will get to those, but the story wraps up with Tom and Beth having each moved on to more suitable partners and Gabe and Karen getting into an almost hilariously wooden DTR conversation, then staving off bed death all better at the end. Did I miss anything? I really don't think so. I mean, other than the, the well, I boner tested this light motif of the movie, but um, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get that reference. What is it? Oh, he says like, well, I put her hand on my oh, crotch. Right, right. And she just reacted in horror. And then he's like, the next lunch, he's like, do you have any idea how many ways I get hard <laughs> with my girl? And it's just like, oh, <laughs> man, really? <laughs> The movie had uh, two senses of pacing, because at one moment I thought, like, oh, God, how long have I been here? And then I found myself, like, 30 minutes later going, like, oh, we're wrapping up? Uh, Really? Mm. Okay. Which I don't know if that's reflective of how they chopped up the play, or maybe that's the way it was originally. It wound up feeling more economical with the subject matter, and at least, I mean, if not, like, entirely original, at least... uh, deserving of its individual take much more so at the end than than it did at the beginning at the beginning i just it was pushing every button of like oh are we gonna have a thing where couples talk about lying Mm -hmm. and things and uh yeah and we're gonna make them as irritating as possible that's what i was sort of going into and and thankfully it wasn't that ultimately Uh, yeah it took a while to sort of get into its own rhythm i am somewhat curious as to how this played on stage. Apparently, according to contemporary reviews, this is fairly true to the staging. The play is seven scenes. The movie adds some connective Mm -hmm. tissue, but not a ton. There were a couple of places where it seemed 
very obvious that this was not quite translating to the visual argo of film. That scene in the bathroom between Gabe and Tom towards the end felt a little like, well, there's a mirror in here. So this is what we're doing. Symbologically. Mm -hmm. And then like a couple of places where like they're driving or unpacking a car like, oh, God, okay, we get it. They went to the store. There's a baguette sticking out of the grocery bag. What are we really doing here? The staginess was... <laughs> There's a baguette. There's six carrots, but they have the green yeah. stuff on the end. They're dangling yeah. out. Or a, <laughs> or a stalk of celery. Like, you know, those those fit in to these bags in life. So a wheel of cheese. Sure. I mean, contemporary reviews thought pretty well of this. Variety's Stephen Oxman, <laughs> for the two of you whose ears just pricked up, no relation. He spells it with a V. The performances are very strong here, particularly McDowell's, who is able to convey Beth's judgmental attitude while keeping the character sympathetic. It is arguably her best work yet. Well, it can be her best work and still not be good or credible. USA Today's Unbylined review gave it three and a half out of four stars and said if you had to choose a standout performer in the cast, it would be Kinnear. I agree with this. Who allows us to see the truth behind Tom's shallow banalities? For his fans, however, the most interesting performance comes from Quaid, because it's impossible not to sense reverberations from his own very public marital breakdown in the part. Well, mm, not sure. Like, I agree with the Kinnear part. I just think Andy McDowell and Dennis Quaid in these particular parts... Like, I don't know where else you'd put them in the cast, but I just wasn't buying it for like an hour. Were you? It's funny. Like, I went through a, a, a thing thinking about the the cast, and uh, that's another bit I can do later. But um, I actually, as it went on, it, it worked more and more for me. It, I think in part because of what initially turned me off. Because when we opened the movie, you know, we've got three people on screen and two of them are the most annoying people on the planet telling the story of like one lunch in florence oh, it's clearly been going on God. for an hour the person who's they're talking to isn't making eye contact and looks like she has a blood disease and they just <laughs> won't stop right you know like fuck yeah. you you know that that's not where you want to start with a movie where it's okay we got two-thirds of the cast and, uh you hate them already and yeah i think and maybe this is just like you know, 20 years intervening and our being more sophisticated about things, but these people don't seem that sophisticated as either people or food writers or No, they really cooks, don't. Really. They they seem sort of like, you know, um now they they kind of have a a rancid petty bourgeois kind of kind of aspect to them um that uh that makes their their crisis and their sort of woodenness seem entirely earned like this is sort of like andy mcdowell yeah i mean it, to me that i agree with that reviewer it was her best performance yet like you put andy mcdowell in a movie and just it's like an anchor stopping all whatever you know when when right yeah well <laughs> you know and, and hugh grant should have married Kristen scott thomas in four weddings and a funeral uh -huh. I mean, we can all see it yeah is it raining I hadn't noted. We had all of these clips for um, <laughs> Teddy Dunn 
in uh, Veronica Mars on the Go Pirates podcast. I'm I'm glad that I saved them all. But this is international log. Los Cucarachas and Tron, pero no pueden salir. Um, the, I actually have a clip that was in the Quaid Qua Quaid section, but I'm going to play it now because their whole boring Beth with this market, which, first of all, they're so vague that he's like, all this produce, like, aren't you supposed to be a food writer? Pick one vegetable. <laughs> and Dennis Quaid struggling with the pronunciation of Pomodoro. I did not clip because I'm not that hateful. Yeah, it's just mean. But this was just like your friends honeymooned on a Eurail pass when they were 23. And now there's those assholes who won't shut up about American bread. <laughs> anyway, he, here's the clip. <laughs> And this market that she took us to? Amelia took us shopping. Campo di Fiore. This outdoor market. <laughs> Fish, produce, you name so it. So aromatic, so colorful, and the faces. I got some great shots. Now, this is someone who's been cooking for 75 years. Can you imagine? Wow. Her relationship to food, it's so primal, so sexy, really. Gave us a great angle for our piece. Regular or decaf? Yes, the primal relationship to sustenance. Great angle, <laughs> Gabe. <laughs> Food, sex, and death. Is that anything? <laughs> you need a heart to live. Yeah, no, I mean, with that scene right there, you have their self-absorption in these inane details that now look much less sophisticated. At the time, I was worried as right. I was watching it that the audience was intended then to go, my goodness, what erudite, incredibly cosmopolitan people. But I think, you know, there was always supposed to be a little bit of hollowness to that balloon, you know, to start with. And like, alienating us was the good move there and that was intentional it wasn't just 20 years of of intervening culture right and then i think you see that with to some degree like the the reductive kind of inanity of how they've viewed marriage which is in the same way that sort of like making a product of this woman a 75 years of primal whatever you know primal eating to live and and they've turned her into a cover story their their marriage is like well we are going to remit to the other this and it's going to suck and we're going to push through then the crisis that they we witness from them is is the crisis of her sort of absolutist i will forgive nothing mentality abutting his of like i've given everything like why can i not be given anything and uh then it isn't really necessarily resolved but it fit for the ranges of those people because they in 2000 they might have seemed very broad but now they seem very narrow and and so very easily dislocated and and ill yeah. to handle it it does start to sort of cumulatively work that these particular actors, especially in the beginning, are kind of slipping and sliding along on the surface of this not terribly well-observed job or vocation that they've been given. So the fact that, and also the scenes in which it's the three of them, and they're gassing on about the monolithic produce of um, Italia. Can you imagine doing anything for 75 years? Like, oh, I get it. It's also shot to make it clear that Beth is just like white knuckling it through this nonsense as she's done many times before because that's just what you do. So I think the material understands what they are, but mm. maybe it was just like a, as you said, a 20 year old understanding of what would be considered aspirational sophistication. But it's actually like, you know, this market's got everything, things, other things, <laughs> nouns even. Like, uh, okay, maybe get a rewrite on, on that. I know you don't want to change too much, but come on. And then 
Beth leaves and cut to <laughs> these two. I mean, I understand what we're supposed to take from this. And yet mm. I could not stop laughing part of it. And this is a famously visual medium, so you're not going to see Dennis Quaid's customary Schrodinger scat look of either trying to hold it in or trying to get it out. Terror. But that these two would be having this conversation under any circumstances. Anyway, here's the clip. What do you think of the Shiraz? Astringent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. Now I feel like he's not actually saying it's trenchant. He's saying astringent. Yes. Oh. That was on my subtitles. So it is astringent. Ah. But no, I mean, like, <laughs> I, I thought you were just going to go for a general, I can't imagine these two, like, spitting into a bucket and talking about whether it's quaffable. Like, I imagine him sipping a beer and she's, like, bitter and he doesn't pull a bitter beer face. He's like, no, it's Keystone Light. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, he's just too ruddy <laughs> and, and handsome and, uh, pitchery and football playery for me to be like that man does not like astringency in his shiraz yeah he's definitely a guy who sort of like looks at the price tag that someone left on the bottle and it's like 13 bucks oh big spender like okay that's fine so this isn't blended is what you're saying (laughs) (laughs) i was so tempted to want to like foist a uh eat your heart out segment on this episode because of the food, but it, it wasn't whack enough. It was just sort of like, okay, you know, very Martha Stewart living, even for the time. Uh-huh. But I'm very glad that you played that clip up at top of the, Roman tonic, this is great. Like, no, it doesn't. Roman tonic. It really doesn't. Ugh. Under any circumstances. <laughs> but yeah, as the movie goes on and sort of layers are peeled off, I mean, I sort of have some issues with, I don't think it sinks to the level of character assassination, but... Some of the rationalizing of Tom and his choices are just like, was this shit that Donald Margulies was told very sternly by his lawyer, not under any circumstances to say out loud in a deposition? Because that's kind of how it's feeling to me. But Kinnear saves it. I think he's really good. I think he's the best thing in this because he's given some real, not just like, garbage time justifying to do but Mm -hmm. he has some of the stagiest dialogue and i thought he was good and very sympathetic under the circumstances on paper he might not have been right that seems like a thankless character on the page i am surprised how long the patience and willingness to extend at least some credibility or empathy to Greg Kinnear's character lasted for mm-hmm. me, but then it pretty much turns into like a magic eight ball of midlife crisis divorce rationales. Mm-hmm. Shake it, one comes up, Dennis Quaid reacts, shake it, and he manages to make them all feel integral and sensical for the character, even if you're watching it and you're just like, oh, he did. He said yeah, that one too, he d- huh? He, d- <laughs> he did. My notes literally are like, because I am someone who has heard my cheating on you is your own fault, Mm -hmm. frigid hag of the North. And it's like, oh, so we're playing that one. All right. I could dance to that. But my notes were like, I can't believe I actually kind of believe him. I mean, it's a real credit to Kinnear. 
I feel like this was right around the time when he was like in everything and everyone right. was talking about how great he was in everything. And I think maybe we all kind of maxed out on like he was on the verge for like two years and didn't exactly verge. He's like Kelly Lynch was like five years before that. Or like Julia Ormond. Mm-hmm. But uh, he really sells it. And there's one fight between him and Beth that I clipped because this was where it started to actually feel a little more lived in to me. I don't know if you agree, but uh, here is where he's basically like, how dare you tell them without me that we're breaking up because now you have the inside lane. Speaking for so both what? of us. So what if they know? So they know. They were bound to find out. That's not the point. You have the advantage now. What? I do not. They heard your side of the story first. Of course they're going to side with you. It's only natural. Nobody's taking sides. Oh, don't be naive. You know how it is. You prejudiced my case. I have not, Tommy. I was very even-handed. How can you say that? You're sitting there turning on the tears. I was not turning on anything. Fuck you. I stated the facts. They were very sympathetic. Of course they were sympathetic. You won them over. I did not stop saying that. I told them what happened, okay? Everything? Yes. What'd they say? They were shocked. They were sad. They were? Well, what do you think? They're our best friends. Of course they were shocked. They were terribly upset. It's sad for you, though, right? Because I'm such a bastard. They were sad for everybody. They were sad for the kids. You should tell them what you did to me. How you killed my oh, self-confidence. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. Yeah. One of those fights that's having you, as uh, she says in my so-called life. I mean, that was sort of where I was like, okay, this is the central problem, I think, is that these two need to be playing all the parts, and they can't, so... I don't know how this is going to turn out, but the kind of surface non-facility of the other two starts to work in the dialogue's favor as this goes on, like you said, I would say. I'm, I'm glad you brought that bit up because one of the things I liked about this script is uh, how many things they set us up for. And you could see even a good movie going down those roads and they're almost all fake outs like that one. I thought as soon as he found out that um, his ex was seeing this guy, David, and as he lost control of the narrative of the divorce that, you know, Greg Kinnear's character would start to come unspooled because we're set up with that, with like, he's fine with the divorce, but only if he can set the terms for it and have everybody agree that the divorce has this value and these people are to blame and these things are to blame. And this is why it's good that it's happening. Right. To and, say nothing of the dog. Yep. 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 Right. And, and so like, we're going to see, oh, well, you know, his little midlife crisis fizzled out and he comes crawling back, you know, beseeching Tony Collette for forgiveness or, or, you know, and either she accepts him or she turns him down and lesson learned. And, and instead he's like, oh, have you met David? He's a great guy. I'm really happy. Did I tell you again how many places my girlfriend gets me hard? She passed the theater test. Yeah, <laughs> fucking asshole. Yeah, she doesn't have any pets. Okay. If you can drive a car and you're still telling people, no. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, you're 44 no. i don't need to know when your erections happen like you got a doctor for that now because mm -hmm. you're 44 they even have an app good luck to you but the big one i actually wrote this out because like i i was struck by like just how much my emotions swung from this the big 
fake out that happened in like, because I really thought this is where we were going to go. Right around 45 minutes in, I'm, I'm thinking like, man, why haven't I heard more about this movie? And I'm like, oh, you know, this, this movie's in this tough bind, right? Because it probably doesn't get made without Andy McDowell and Dennis Quaid, mm-hmm. even though for it to really work, it probably should not be made with Andy McDowell and Dennis Quaid. Right. Yeah, but this is surprisingly well done for the subject matter and for the time. I'm surprised by it. Like, why, really, why am I not hearing about it? And then, boom, Roll With It by Steve Winwood comes up. Flashback, it's Martha's Vineyard, 1988, baby. And I was like, oh, here it comes. Yeah. Like, this is going to be the bit where, like, we find out Annie McDowell's pregnant. It's like, oh, my God, Dennis Quaid is going to rail some girl with his dinghy out on the you know like and then he's gonna have a a lesson and that's why he's been so querulous about andy mcdowell's absolutism and complete absence of forgiveness is because he knows he needs to be forgiven for something and instead we don't get any of that Mm -mm. and then that weird acting constipation and then the emotional constipation and these sort of like brittle ideations of marriage rubbing up against each other in synchronicity with the bed making you know that then works but like i as soon as like fucking steve winwood i'm like oh here it comes yeah once she's in a hammock reading bonfire of the vanities you can see all this in our visual aids they'll be on twitter they'll be on our patreon quaint and full quaint and full pod there's also a number of places where and you know you could sort of view this from a number of perspectives sometimes it sort of feels like selling beth out for reasons of the playwright's own but the decision to have their meet cute in this flashback, because the flashback is to when Tom and Beth get together, it's like not going that great because she's being a lot and, you know, is halfway down a rum and tonic in our next clip. But um, that's really a choice in a narrative like this, not to retrospect it. With a lot of, Mm -hmm. and look how that turned out, or little did they know, like, actually, this was a five-legged donkey from the get. So, here's a clip. What what style do you call it? I mean, what what, what is it? Is it uh, realistic? Oh, sorry. Do you know art? Not really. Then why ask for labels? Why not just take it at face value? Can I see? No! Okay, okay. Sharing one's art comes with trust. It's a gift. I never show my art on the first date. <laughs> oh, is this a date? Thought you guys said this wasn't a date. Hey, uh, shocking time. <laughs> shocking time. Yeah, I'm, I'm willing to dream it's over. Um, <laughs> That whole bit, though, undermines him pretty well, too, because first of all, your response isn't, you know, is that what this is? It's just you just turn to your buddies and go, I thought you said this wasn't a date because you're having a bad time and you're just letting them know you're fine with it not being a date. Yeah. From here on out, because you do not care for this lady. And literally the thing that gets him to change his mind is that, like, he gets to play hero, has nothing to do with her. Right. And then she enjoys him touching her finger as he's giving her a band-aid because she's accidentally cut her her finger slicing shallots uh, you know up until then she's proved to be a dingbat about what shallots are so like she isn't even on the level of of him and and his friends but like he gets to do this relatively meaningless gesture that fits within a certain trope right she's nice to him and likes him 
goes outside and Dennis Quaid says, well, she likes you. And he goes, oh, really? Well, then I like her. Yeah. You know, pal, it was all right in front of you. You made the decision to accessorize your life with this person who is a factory irregular, but you didn't care. And so, like, it does sort of undermine the fact that he even needed to go on a journey at all later with uh, his travel agent because, like, he didn't reckon with the fact that the thing that came crashing down was the fact that he made an idle decision based on being gratified. Yeah. It's sort of interesting that uh, this flashback sort of backs up the idea that he has always been craving, like, emotional intimacy with and vulnerability from her. And in the present, he's acting like, don't I have a right to this? Like, well, you know, you're a human being. Of course you do. But the fact that it was basically never forthcoming and that any feelings that she had about him were kind of transactional, whatever, he's bandaging a cut on her finger. They're told that they like each other, so they're just going to proceed on that basis. Mm -hmm. It's really not something that you see a lot. This is not a trope. And it was interesting to look at that choice and to look at the choice to make her kind of opaque but then when the water is clear you don't love the view at, at the bottom it, mm. it's non-standard certainly i was not bored like the first 15 minutes i was like oh god i'm gonna claw my own face off but right that's all you did to the lamb really <laughs> just like balsamic and <laughs> go on well, and it, it never needs more balsamic i'm sorry i'm not a crackpot <laughs> a touch more balsa shut up just shut up <laughs> i mean <laughs> and you know what i'm gonna get mad about it too i'm, I'm not actually <laughs> coming up next month on the patreon where the fuck the balsamic take comes from <laughs> where's where's the balsamic hate coming from folks i just want to get to the bottom of this uh. i just want to get to the root because we want to stop it <laughs> Well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> Talia Balsam stole a cab from me. I, t I told her I'd get her, and now she's gotten got. Oh, God. All right. The foodie hilarity aside, are we prepared to rate this film? I, I do have two little bit more bits of appreciation about the film. Great. I, I want to shoehorn before my rating. One is this quote from Andy McDowell where uh, she and Tony Collette are at lunch and, and she's explaining, oh, you know, I'm single and I'm doing these exciting things. And she says, and you know, he's taking me out rollerblading. And <laughs> Annie McDowell says, are you wearing knee pads and a helmet and everything? And I just thought that was a wonderfully dorky touch uh, that also was on point for the character. Like, not even excited, just like, are you, you're going to fuck up, right? You're going to fuck up? You got your fuck up gear? And then of two minutes and 40 seconds thereafter, we get this line delivery. We can't all be like you, Karen, delivered to Andy McDowell's character, which was, uh, given the recent years, it, that really enriched that line for me. Mm -hmm. But also, I mean, did a, a great job of, of underlining the, the counterpoint to that flashback of uh, Andy McDowell in that scene saying, like, I wanted to build a family and I'm losing a family. And it's like, well, yeah, you, you built one. You didn't care what pieces you put together. And you kind of enjoyed that this one was fucked up. But yes, we can't all be like you, Karen. I can't do it, Karen. What do you want me to do? Yeah, that scene felt both very stagey and also like a little bit bratty for yeah. both of them. But there was also this kind of, um, this is where casting Annie McDowell really works in your favor. Because sometimes the characters 
inability to access what she's actually feeling lines up with the actress's inability to tell you what she's supposed to be feeling. So I thought that worked well. And there was a nice bit of business with her angrily bisecting an endive that was like, okay, sometimes you're supposed to be here and you're right for this. Good for you. And her hair looked good. Even her eating was wonderfully childishly angry and incapable like she had her arms up and almost with her forearms going down at 90 degrees and <laughs> chopping that way and it yeah. just sort of looked like she wanted to be working steam levers on an old ship uh-huh just like full steam ahead Mm-mm-mm. but it was that's it the produce is getting it i can't believe you were specific about what kind you've, you've ruined the spread by yeah. telling us what she was cutting it should have just been produce Yeah. Well, and then, you know, right before this scene, like some not a small amount of screen time is spent sort of lovingly shooting the buffet from which they're serving themselves. Is this a foodie or not? I don't know. Yeah. Roger Deakins gets a lot of mileage out of food implements. I mean, it is a pretty movie to look at and there's not a lot to look at, but he manages to like give some screen time to just about everything. So yeah it's true it's not busy and it's not i mean there are a lot of things that are like okay that's an establishing shot i've seen before but it's not trite and it's aesthetically nice if nothing else so yeah yeah i mean the added connective scenes were not intrusive 94 minutes was the right length i think for this so so i don't know like a seven i think i mean it's it's a good movie in spite of two of its characters but maybe that's why it's a good movie and it's going over trite territory or very familiar territory but it's doing it with a flair and some for greg kinnear and uh an economy and a lot of like binary pairing of of point counterpoint stressors and giving you know a reasonable accounting to each perspective and and no voice is triumphant nobody's i think unfairly undermined it is exactly the mess that this sort of shit is i don't know 7.5 okay i'm gonna come in at a flat seven I think there were some surprising performances and it really kind of um, like all the disparate parts that seem like they're not working end up cohering by the end. But I, I think this is maybe not as insightful and trenchant or astringent as maybe it thinks it is or was told it was. I think we're supposed to be like POV over the shoulders of Gabe and Karen, but they are one and a half dimensions put together for a mm-hmm. lot of it. And that half dimension is dread. And that's whatever <laughs> else they come up with. Um, we'll get more into this in the next section. But yeah, I I was surprised by it. I think it's well assembled, but as thought provoking as it thinks, maybe not. And there's some real clunkers and also just don't don't make them food writers. Like if you're going to cast these two, make them something else. I don't care what. Yeah. I think that profession does a disservice to the inexpressiveness of the character. I I think a character who shuts down communication whenever he's on uncertain ground just doesn't really fit with somebody who has that capability of expressiveness professionally, because like you're going to get more evasion or this would have come to a head much earlier. You don't have a crisis over you don't talk and you shut down Yeah. at this point. Yeah. Uh, because that's way too overt of a flipping of a switch. And that act carries way too much hostility 
rather than being like a normative state, if he's always reticent, if he's always, you know, uh, unforthcoming about everything, then yeah, maybe you get to that point. But like, if, if he can't deal with direct communication and crisis without doing that, like, you're not going to go, you know, after 20 years, this is a liability because that is an in your face denial of intimacy, especially if you're, you know, already taught, if you're a character that in other respects is talking about self-abnegation as something that is vital for intimacy, like at some point you're going to consider the value of just like getting over it and blabbing for a bit. And if you're a writer, like you could at least just sort of like expatiate wildly on like something else that's culpable or something else that's motivating you to distract from it. But instead, you know, you're not going to just be like clunk, the door comes down. Yeah. Or sort of staring into the middle distance like side by side, not facing each other to be able to come up with some sort of synesthetic comment about the Shiraz. But then when you're brought back to the actual topic to not be like, and also, I don't know, this is fucking couples car talk time. The door closes on Beth. You wait for the car to get to the end of the driveway. And then you're like, holy shit. I mean, are you on each yeah. other's team or not? That gossip just needs to pour forth. Yeah. <laughs> What did we just sit through? <laughs> I know exactly. Was it the produce? What did I say? <laughs> we should have cut the green part off the carrots. <laughs> Shorter baguette. <laughs> cut it in half first. Put it in the bag. And no more balsamic. I, I will say in, in deference to like the okay, he's a food writer thing. Like they didn't say what he majored in. Like maybe he just blundered into being a food writer. People have blundered into being writers all the time. Like maybe he was a you know business major. But like they could have just left him being a business major, you know, of course, then he's, you know, everybody's going to understand why he's inexpressive. You know, you got plenty of cultural shorthand. Yeah. I'm assuming there was some bit of business reason to do this for the play. Tommy is a lawyer. Like, uh, I don't know. It, it's really sounding like I disliked it more than I did. <laughs> it kind of it does figure itself out in ways that you don't necessarily think it's going to. And it, like you said, there's a lot of fake outs that I respect it because I was expecting kind of a, you know, filmed Ted talk on the, you know, Rashomon of divorce. But uh, yeah, seven. So the quaintiness, we've really been talking about this uh, all along, but I have a clip where he's basically getting yelled at by Tommy for sort of he's like trying to you know repile up the sandbags and Tommy's like I don't actually care what you think I just want you to be happy that I'm getting a wristy like I'm 15 um <laughs> and it's an interesting contrast acting wise so let me play that it's kind of a long clip but the marriage is over what, what have I been telling how do you, you how do you know that it's over because I know because as far as I'm concerned, it is over. It has been for me for a long time. Yeah, that's the way you feel right now, in the heat of the moment. But I, don't you want to be absolutely sure that you're making the right decision? I am making the right decision. Are you questioning my decision? No, I just mean if, if I were you, I would... You're not me. Okay, Tom. What I'm trying to say is, if I were you, I would want to be certain that there was absolutely no hope whatsoever. Oh, man. How can you walk away, Tommy? How can you just throw up your hands and walk away? I, I don't get it. 12 years. Don't you think you owe that to your kids? I stuck it out this long for my kids. Doesn't do anybody any good anymore. It doesn't make any sense. What if this is just a transient thing? Or a midlife crisis or something? I mean, don't you want to know if it's something that'll pass before you do something irrevocable? Well, this is not what I wanted from you, all right? 
If you were really my friend. Of course I'm your friend, asshole. What do you mean if I was really If you your were really friend? my friend, you'd just listen. Just listen. Would you You mean I'm not supposed to say a word? I don't want your advice. I don't want to know what you think. I just want you to hear me. Is that asking too much? I just want you to be jealous of me is unsaid, but conveyed pretty economically. This is uh, this was a really interesting scene. I don't think Dennis Quaid is bad, but I just kept thinking, like, shouldn't he be Tommy? And then I thought, I don't think he'd do as good a job. What do you think? No, I think I think the the same rascaliness that we think of as like the Quaidity would make him too much of a like a horny douchebag mm -hmm. for the Tom yep. character. Yeah, I agree. And here, I think that, I mean, you, you know, you're, you're talking about it like the alimentary dilemma, of like in or out with him. And to me, that like is more the sort of the, the well-meaning galoot face I'm seeing more on him. Uh -huh. And it, this is, again, where like the writer thing clashes. I mean, I guess, you know, if we had some more backstory where it's like I became a food writer because I loved food so much and this is the only way I could travel the world and eat a lot of it, fine. But like... The way Quaid does that, like, I'm kind of a Labrador and did I upset you? Oh, dear. You know, kind of face. There's a, a, a sweetness and a um, like a lack of culpability there that uh, to that that face that we've seen before, like as a stock face. And here, like it works toward the end. And maybe it's like we've been saying, it's a cumulative effect of his incapacity to vocalize what uh what's troubling him or or you know how he's feeling but eventually all that kind of like mm -hmm. like labrador face kind of works as somebody who you know made a decision early that this is the thing he would pledge his life to and if the choice came down to something of him or his marriage he was always going to choose the latter and there is a certain sheepdoggy timorousness that works for him Labrador, sheepdog. How many metaphors did I cram in there? <laughs> Two dog ones. Yeah, they're all of the mix. Yep, you had a you had a bunch of um, bunch of breeds in there. But let's go to the AKC metaphor wheel. <laughs> They'll all hunt. Um... <laughs> really? <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> to touch more balsamic. Um... <laughs> Jesus. Nobody's that good. Um, so, <laughs> totally lost my train of thought. Cool. Should be another one in five minutes. He has some blocking that is, um, there's this way that he'll put sort of a hand on, not his hip exactly, but his lower back, and uh, just like kick that hip out. He does it a lot in the Big Easy. That's Quaid. It's not the character, but it goes with the grin often and mm -hmm. here it's not paired with the grin it's the safe space so that was kind of interesting and there is a sense early in that clip that uh quaid is just trying to remember his lines like this is a lot of dense not even 50 cent words but like 35 centers these are things he's never ordered before right none of them come with texas toast <laughs> <laughs> or the the little bottle of hot sauce uh he, yeah he, <laughs> there it is which is a, a way of life in texas uh he just seems like he's trying not to look down and get through the scene and that he feels like it's Kinnear's scene but once you get partway through that clip he starts to stand up to it more mm -hmm. he's not bad here i think he's cast against type 
And I think he's not like the food writer thing is a problem that I'm just going to have to immediately clock a couple of Quaid points for because he's just not selling it at all. But there are ways in which he well, the other problem is they keep trying to put glasses on this guy in various movies. And it's like he just he doesn't look like a glasses guy. He's that guy who's going to be holding the menu as far out as he can and then having a kid hold it across the table before he will get the glasses from the drugstore. He is that guy. They have not found a pair of glasses that fits him properly yet Mm -hmm. in our travels in this podcast. I'm not saying that he can't be believable as a more as more of a sophisticate, but it's like um, wardrobe and props don't want to help him. I have to jump in there. Okay. I kind of think that like he's, you know, when you see like a drawing of a big brown furry bear and it's got like little Ben Franklin spectacles and you're like, ah, it's adorable. He kind of, you know, nets a couple of dogs, yacht, New York Stock Exchange and a bear. That's I'm that's all the things I'm going to liken him to. But okay. the, he, he did he look kind of cuddly. I don't know. You know, <laughs> it, it worked for me. I mean, he didn't not look cuddly. I'm just saying I didn't believe those were his glasses. They looked like he got them at the halloween store i but this is a guy though who would be like he would go into the store and be like what do you give me the cuddliest frames you've got he's like i need tortoise shell are we talking about quaid or this character the character oh okay because i think quaid would be like what glasses are going to make me look harmless so that i can get it in i feel like this character is like what glasses look like a hug (laughs) yeah maybe i don't disagree all right how good is he though He's surprisingly good. I mean, uh, like definitely the the character and the the way the play slash movie is structured helps him out, like we said. But he did, I guess, either exactly what the director, you know, told him to or tricked him into doing, uh, you know, to to fit this character progression. I mean, so I'm I'm around a seven on that, too. He's in the movie a lot. He holds his own a lot. He's doing things I don't expect of him. And at the end of it, I felt like. 98% of what I saw him do on screen fit holistically with the character in that moment and with the themes that at the end of it, you're realizing, okay, these are all the things the, the, the play slash film wants to sew up and he's conveying that he's not standing in its way. And and in some cases, like my expectations of Quaid are being subverted in a way I think really helps the character. I I think that's all true. I think there are some things that are just not going to be non-credible in their inception, but they're not his fault. I think, you know, this review that mentioned his sort of real life marital breakdown, like I wasn't really thinking about that. And I think our understanding of that whole situation two decades later is that Meg Ryan just decided what was good for the gander, etc. But that like that wasn't really playing into it. He is on screen a lot. He is doing what he's supposed to do and sometimes doing more than he's supposed to do that runner that comes back at the end that is supposed to put a period on their whole story i think is probably what got him cast because whatever else he is or is not selling like pomodoro et al (laughs) he absolutely sells that goofy in joke um there's a couple grins and uh you know the director gets his shirt off for a decently long scene thank you very much so uh it's not perfect but that's not on him so i'm giving it an eight 
the way it started out, I thought you were going lower and I was like, oh man, did I, I, am I missing something? I'm, I'm, I'm heartened that Quaid won you over for, you know, to the tune of eight. It's yeah. Well, I mean, good on you, Dennis. What's that? Like th- we are in the DILF phase. Mm. A, there weren't too many constipated acting faces, at least the character or like the direction did not call on him to do that. And the Tara Ariano does this guy fuck metric like yeah oh totally probably not as much as he wants to but i buy it next time on quaid in full the rookie in the meantime pour yourself a glass of something astringent and check out the show notes and follow the podcast on twitter at quaid in full pod and there's even more content at our patreon page patreon.com slash quaid in full Quaid Info is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet? No shucking time like the present, so go sign up wherever you get your podcasts. And rate and review Quaid Info so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Is that all you have to say? What? Any thoughts? Well, uh... Anything? No, I've... <clears throat> really don't know what else to say. Great. Fine. Yeah.